Thanks, Jim. Good morning, everybody. Before we get started this morning, I want to uh, extend some thanks. You know, we had a wonderful Thursday, Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday services. And um, I think it goes unnoticed a lot of times, but those things don't happen by accident. And uh, we don't have a candle fairy that actually comes in and sets up all the candles and decorates the auditorium for that. Actually, we do, and his name's Jim Garrett. And I want to extend our thanks to Jim. I see last week, Jim, when you were naming it, Jim the Candle Fairy. But, uh, you know, a lot of these things happen behind the scenes, and a lot of uh, time and energy goes into planning those services every year. And Jim does such a great job, and it just I, I didn't want that to go unnoticed this year. So thank you, Jim. We appreciate it. We trust that it laid the groundwork for what we're going to celebrate here today. But, you know, think about it. Isn't the end of Easter season a relief? You know all the presents you had to buy and the debt that it left on your credit card. The pressure of all those Easter parties seems like a new one every night. You're never kind of home for a couple months before Easter. Doesn't that seem to be the way it is? And then the need to get all your Easter cards out. Everybody get all their Easter cards out this year? I don't know. And then if you didn't send one, you're stuck sending the obligatory response card just so you don't have to bear the shame of not having sent a card to somebody. And how about the crowds? It seems like everywhere you go, people are Easter shopping, there's traffic jams near the malls. It's enough to drive you crazy and make you say, bah humbug. Huh? <laughs> At least we have Easter carols to sing and hear throughout the season, huh? Well, of course... We may have thought some of those kinds of things when we consider the Christmas season, but these things aren't the same trappings around Easter, are they? Have you ever thought about the way we celebrate Christmas as a church holy day versus how we celebrate Easter? I think because of the world's influence and because of our human nature, Christmas most often supersedes Resurrection Sunday, more commonly known as Easter, as the most important holiday in the church calendar. We generally spend a whole lot more time building up to Christmas than we do to Easter. Many Protestant churches will mark Advent, but many do not even mention any kind of Lenten observation, the period of preparation for Easter. Personally, I think that's a largely secular influence that has brought about these things on both holidays. We see Christmas decorations up a couple months or more before December 25th, we focus more of our time and energy on preparation for Christmas, and really, if we're honest, it's not really much of a spiritual preparation for Christmas, and that's why these terms are not in our vernacular, what we joked about a moment ago, Easter shopping, Easter vacation, Easter presents, Easter music, Easter decorations, Easter lights, Easter trees, we don't have those things. Christmas is more widely recognized by the secular world as well as the church world. And there are only some who would actually argue about the birth of Christ. However, when people consider his words, when they consider his life, when they consider his death by crucifixion, and when they consider his resurrection, then the struggle begins. Now, why is this? I think, for one, Christmas is kind of an easier holiday to believe in and get behind. It's easier to believe in a birth, though certainly not in a virgin birth, because we've all been there and done that, right? And we see it happen all the time. But a resurrection, 
You're kidding me, right? A resurrection's a whole different thing. Christmas is a little more easily sanitized. You have a baby at Christmas. Everybody loves babies. You have the quaint story about being born in a manger. On the other hand, when you compare babies with death and the grave, well, again, there we have a problem, don't we? The problem is, of course, that it's impossible to talk about the resurrection of Jesus without talking about death. And in the case of Jesus, it's really hard to talk about his death without talking about the crucifixion. Christmas is easier to secularize. It's easier to sanitize. Santa is certainly a more enduring, enjoyable addition to Christmas than the Easter bunny is to Easter. Also, there's a recognition of birth as a common experience, but death followed by resurrection is absolutely impossible to separate from its spiritual implications. Russell Moore wrote this in an article I read just this week. The temptation that comes to all of us in every era of the church is to have Jesus without seeing ourselves in the gore of his bloody cross and the glory of his empty grave. In the way that we speak of him to our children or to skeptics or to seekers, we sometimes believe we'll gain more of a hearing if we present him as a teacher but not as a former corpse. It's too disturbing, we think, to ourselves, too weird. Isn't that true? The church has bought into some of the world's priorities, and Christmas seems to be a more important holiday than Easter. So I'm not knocking Christmas here, the traditions, the fun of the holiday this morning. I'm simply asking us to consider the understanding from the Word of God about the importance of Resurrection Day. If you have your Bibles with me this morning, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15? That's our primary text for this morning. I had no idea that the worship team was going to do what they were going to do. They read much of what we're going to look at here this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to focus on about a half dozen key sections from this chapter. It's a long chapter. We're not going to read the whole thing. But we're going to focus on verse 1, which says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. We're going to look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And verses 17 through 19, which read, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And in verse 30, it says, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? And then verses 54 through 58, starting at the end of verse 54, it says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So we have to start this morning in our exploration of this chapter and the importance of the resurrection by looking at the importance that Paul placed on the resurrection, what we celebrate today. He stated unequivocally how important this was. He says in... uh, Verses 3 and 4 of our chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, 
and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See that Paul called this of first importance. He didn't mention Christ's birth. Of course, that doesn't diminish the importance of the virgin birth, but it only prioritizes it for us. Next, we take a look at verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, the gospel I preach to you, he talks about the gospel I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And then in verse 58, at the end of this chapter, he admonishes us to stand firm, to be steadfast, to be immovable. It's a clear theme in this passage of Scripture, as well as throughout Scripture. Stand firm, taking your stand. But to what or on what are we holding firmly? On what are we taking our stand? Clearly, the resurrection is the focus of this chapter of Scripture. In this context, it's an all-encompassing statement. It means essentially the thing on which you've built your work, on which you've built your lives. It implies a foundation. And what do you do on a foundation? You build on it. Everything is built on a foundation. Paul's telling us it's a foundational truth. It's an indispensable fact, without which nothing else makes sense. So we see how important this message of the resurrection is. It's of first importance. It's a truth on which you've taken your stand, to which we must hold firmly. The resurrection is the foundation of all that the apostles preached and all that they believed. A foundation has to be strong, it has to be firm, and it has to be able to handle everything that's built on top of it. That's true of buildings, and it's true of our lives. The foundation of the resurrection was strong enough to build a church on. And not just any church, but a church that has not simply survived, but has grown and thrived and prospered through the most difficult of storms, through centuries of persecution, which continue in many parts of the world to this day. A church which has even survived martyrdom. A church that the world or the enemy could not kill off. We read in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. It takes a strong foundation to stand firm against such trials. Now at the end of this morning's message, we're going to hear a song that celebrates this strong foundation and the reality that the church of Jesus Christ born on Easter morning, has outlived its persecutors and its enemies for more than 2,000 years. The song we're going to hear mentions historical figures, such as the Roman um, Emperor Diocletian. He's long dead and gone, but still the church brings God glory. Now this wicked Roman ruler not only tried to snuff out Christians, but he tried to do away with Scripture. He ordered it confiscated. And destroyed. Now, Nero was another emperor in Rome, and he was well known as a persecutor of Christians. The early church faced severe persecution. And of course, even in our day and age, as we learned and heard about just this morning in our prayer time, we remember that our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world still face persecution. But you know what? We're forced to admit that the evil of some of today's regimes which persecute believers probably makes Nero look like Mr. Rogers. It's worse 
In some parts of the world, it's worse today than it was when Paul wrote this to the Corinthians to stand firm. So what does this have to do with Easter? Well, everything. It has everything to do with Easter. It's the resurrection on which these people took their stand, their stand unto death. It's the resurrection on which our brothers and sisters today have taken their stand in the Middle East, in China, in Indonesia, in India, and any of the more than 100 nations around the world where Christians suffer for being followers of Christ to this very day. Many of you have read Fox's Book of Martyrs. This is not light bedtime reading, but it's nevertheless very inspiring and very relevant as we look at this passage of Scripture here this morning. It's important to remember that each of the apostles suffered persecution, and most died as martyrs. Tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Andrew, after being ordered by a Roman governor to stop preaching Christ or face execution, reportedly told the Romans this, I would not have preached the honor and glory of the cross if I feared the death of the cross. In this book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, he writes, Death was not considered enough punishment for the Christians who were subjected to the cruelest treatment possible. They were whipped, disemboweled, torn apart, and stoned. Plates of hot iron were laid on them. They were strangled, eaten by wild animals, hung and tossed on the horns of bulls. And after they were dead, their bodies were piled in heaps and left to rot without burial. Nevertheless, the church continued to grow, deeply rooted in the doctrine of the apostles and watered with the blood of the saints. The foundation of the doctrine of the apostles that John Fox referred to was the resurrection. How in the world did the church continue to grow in the face of treatment like this? You know, think about it. Today, we see a lot of churches that seek to grow by telling people, well, come here, we'll meet your needs, you'll be happy here, you can find your best life now. Now, can you imagine one of those cute little church signs with a catchy phrase in the days of Diocletian? What might a sign like that have said? How about, be a target of Diocletian, come suffer for the real king of kings? Or how about, be a martyr for Jesus, come learn how? Sunday at 3 a.m. before the Romans are up. I'm convinced that the church continued to grow because the foundation was so firm and so solid that they were convinced of the fact and the power of the resurrection. They literally did not fear death because of the resurrection. Another lyric that you'll hear in the song that we'll hear at the end of this sermon is about Stalin. You may remember Stalin. The song was written in the 1970s, and the Soviet Union existed when this song was written. And the Soviet Union was still imprisoning believers, like Stalin did during his reign before the 70s, some of whom Gordon knows personally and just saw on his recent trip to Russia. Now, since this song was written in the 70s, even that part of the history that made the song relevant then has already passed away. Because think about it. Stalin's long dead and gone, and the Soviet Union is no more. But the universal church of Jesus Christ is still alive and kicking. The fact of the resurrection is the foundational truth of the gospel. Of course, 
We cannot separate that from Jesus' death on the cross. But the resurrection gave life, excuse the pun, to the gospel. So you can't separate the resurrection from Jesus' death on the cross. It's the foundational truth of the gospel. The fact of the resurrection of Jesus, accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit after his ascension in Pentecost, was the fundamental personal conviction of the apostles. It was the basis of their preaching. It was the final support of their martyrdom. The resurrection gave Jesus ultimate credibility, first with his disciples and then with his subsequent followers. It gave him ultimate authority. It vindicated his death on the cross. The Christian life is not a call for the timid. It's a challenge for the convinced. Sometimes we like to talk about the promises of God. And when we talk of these, we only think of what we consider to be those good promises. But there are other promises in the word that don't seem quite as pleasant sometimes. These promises are the reason for this admonition we see in 1 Corinthians 15 to stand firm and to, as it says in verse 2, hold firmly to the word. How about this? You never hear about this one in, uh, when you read about the promises of God. From John 15, it says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. That kind of promise was a living reality to the early church of Jesus Christ. And it continues to be a reality for much of the world, more so than most of us in America can even really begin to comprehend today. Paul said in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 15, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? That's why they needed a firm foundation on which to stand. That's what the resurrection accomplished. It provided that foundation. This is the foundation of the church, the inscription on the banners of her armies, the strength and comfort of every heart, and the grand hope of humanity. The Lord is risen indeed. Remove this foundation and everything falls. The entire structure crumbles. The depth of conviction that these men had about the resurrection played a significant part in the spread of the gospel, and it does to this day. Many of you know the story of Charles Colson. He tells the story of his conversion, and he points out that the thing that had the biggest impact in convincing him of the truth of the resurrection and the gospel was actually the Watergate scandal that got him sent to prison. In the Watergate scandal, the well-educated, highly motivated professionals that worked for Richard Nixon couldn't cover up their lies for very long. Once the truth about Watergate and the cover-up began to come out, it was a matter of days before everyone connected with it lawyered up, and they were already looking for a way to save their own skin to keep themselves out of jail. They could not maintain a lie for the sake of their misguided principles or to save a president that they actually believed in. They cracked under the pressure and they did it quickly. Yet here we see these disciples of Jesus. We read about them in the New Testament. Accused of fabricating Jesus' resurrection and they're taking this so-called lie to the grave through suffering, through persecution. 
So Charles Colson noted that no one dies for what he knows to be a lie. Yet these early Christians never cracked under the pressure and maintained until their end the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Now that reality, understanding that this is the way it happened, was enough to convince a skeptical intellectual like Charles Colson that the gospel was true. He knew that if Jesus is risen, he had to do something with the things that Jesus claimed and the things that he said. He knew that Jesus never gave us the choice to consider him a great teacher or simply a prophet. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. We move on to verse 13 and then 17 through 19. Let me read those verses again. 1 Corinthians 15, 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And then verses 17 through 19. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Those poor Christians, look what they believe. These verses beg the question, if Jesus had remained under the power of death, how could he deliver us from death? A dead Christ might have been a teacher and a wonder worker and remembered and loved as such. But only a risen Christ could be the Savior, the life, and the life giver, and as such preached to all men. Denial of the resurrection leaves Jesus in a martyr's grave. It makes our Christian faith futile. It makes sin triumphant, and it makes the hope of glory a pitiful myth. Just this morning, I read an article in the Tulsa World. It was a front-page story, and it was about how many people believe in the resurrection. Well, the good news is about 78% claim to believe in the resurrection. But this is the quote that disturbed me. This is a pastor of a church in our neighborhood. And he says, you don't have to believe the story is literally true for it still to carry the same weight and meaning. I totally believe that something incredible, transformative happened to the disciples or the whole Jesus movement would have faded away. We just don't know what it was. He says, progressives would still say that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and with us. What we disagree with is the idea of the physical presence of Jesus, physical bodily resurrection. We're saying to people, don't give up on Christianity if you can't believe in the literalness of the stories. There's still a place for you if you don't take the stories literally. Let me tell you this. The apostles took the stories literally. And that is what was their foundation and why they were able to suffer persecution and go to the grave believing because they had seen it. They had seen it. And they knew 500 other people who had seen it. One commentator noted that the world would not have been converted to a dead Christ, however much his disciples might have continued to love his memory. I believe that's true. I, be, I, I wondered what they preach in that church on this particular Sunday of the year. Gee, it's a good story. It's a good story, but, you know, it didn't really happen, but it's a good story. 
I'm sorry, that's not enough for me to build my life on, to anchor my faith in. It's not enough. If it didn't happen, what did Paul say? We are of most people to be pitied. Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins if it didn't happen. On the other hand, the fact of the resurrection and the power that comes with that fact gives assurance of human resurrection, assurance of the conquest of death, assurance that evil is vanquished, and it gives us daily equipping for our Christian service. The truth is our deliverance from sin and the resulting eternal life depends on Jesus being raised from the dead. We see that in this passage of Scripture. We see it in many other places. How about Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 24? For us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to our death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We see it in Ephesians chapter 2 beginning with verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Look at verse 19 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, our passage. It says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are more pitied than all men. Paul says here that if we're only concerned about what Jesus can do for us in the here and now, we'd be better off pagan. We'd be better off not believing in Jesus at all. We also see the words used earlier in verse 14 and 17, useless, futile. That's how important the resurrection is. That's how important it is. It renders life useless. It renders life futile. It renders life hopeless without it. Matthew Henry said, if all our hopes in Christ lie within the compass of this life, they, referring to Christians, are in a much worse condition than the rest of mankind. Better be anything than a Christian on these terms. They fare much harder than other men in this life and yet have no further or better hopes. The Christian is by his religion crucified to this world and taught to live for the hope of another. Relate this for a moment to verse 30. As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? That's a rhetorical question, isn't it? And then verse 32, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? Our faith would be a foolish profession indeed if it gives us no hope at all beyond this life. If it requires us to risk all the blessings and comforts of this life and to face endure and and endure all of the evils without any future prospects. What kind of fools would we be if we hung on to that? As Paul notes in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We may as well do whatever we want if the resurrection isn't true. It's not too much of a stretch to say that disbelief in the resurrection can lead to sin. Think of the attitude described in verse 32 that I just read. What does it matter if I sin, if there's really nothing more than this life? What does it even matter? The disciples preached, first and foremost, the resurrection, and not just Jesus' resurrection, but our resurrection. Look again at verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ. We have to remember that in the New Testament, hope means a confident expectation. It's not wishful thinking like we use the word hope 
so often. So when Paul talks of Christ, the hope of glory, when he writes in this verse in 1 Corinthians 15 of our hope in Christ, he's not talking about wishful thinking. He's talking of a confident expectation, a convinced anticipation. We remember that this chapter begins with Paul writing of the gospel on which you have taken your stand and by which we are saved if we hold firmly to the word. And then the chapter ends with the admonition to stand firm. The last verse again says, stand firm, let nothing move you. This is a clear and consistent command in Scripture, to stand firm, to hold firmly, to take our stand. We see it in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 6 and 14. Verse 6 says, we are his house if we hold on to courage and the hope of which we boast. Verse 14 says, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. What we need to ask ourselves is, why are we told so often to hold firmly or to stand strong? I believe that God recognizes this about us frail human creatures. The world and its cares, not to mention the kind of persecution that we've already taken a look at, will cause many of us to lose our grip on the gospel, maybe to hang on to the truth a little less tightly, or to move off the foundation onto things that are actually less solid than that foundation. If this is the reality of our lives, we have to ask ourselves, to what are we holding firmly? What is our foundation? What keeps the church born on Easter morning, growing, thriving, persevering, prevailing through the centuries against tremendous odds? The answer is very clear. It's the resurrection. It's the resurrection of Jesus. It means we win in the end. That's good news, isn't it? We win in the end. Jesus' victory over death was a foretaste of our victory over death made possible by that Easter morning. Our salvation was bought and paid for on the cross. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. But the church triumphant was born on Easter morning, rose to newness of life for us. In business, they talk about the bottom line. After you've talked about everything else, all the other elements that go into a business. You have the revenues, you have the expenses, then you have the bottom line. And in business, that's profit or loss. Christianity's bottom line is the resurrection. And again, it's not just Jesus' resurrection, but what that resurrection made possible for us. He defeated death, and as a result, we have eternal life through him. I like what Paul does in verse 55. He mocks death. He mocks death. He says, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Now, in basketball and in many other sports, you know what they call that? Trash talk. They call that trash talking. Those who talk trash had better be able to back it up. If I say in basketball, and you're guarding me, and I say I'm taking you to the hoop, or if I tell you you're about to eat that basketball because I'm going to block your shot, well, then I had better be able to deliver that. Now, Paul talks a little trash here at the enemy, and he has the foundation of the resurrection to back up his talk. They say that it isn't trash talk or it isn't boasting if it's true. Now, I don't know if that's right or not, but Paul's boast here is true. Paul's trash talk is absolutely true. 
the last verse shows us another important thing. We might have a tendency to look at this Christian life with all of its cares and all of its struggles as just one of survival. Well, we win in the end. If we can just make it, we'll be in glory. Well, that's true, but it only tells part of the story. Because Paul tells us here in the last verse of the chapter, after his very impassioned plea for the importance of and his defense of the resurrection, not only of Christ, but of we believers, Paul says that this Christian life isn't just about survival. Part of our hope for that reward of the resurrection, if we stand firm, if we let nothing move us, is our resurrection. But Paul talks of giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. How does that fit in? Why? Why does he tell us that? Because our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Contrary to the questions that he posed earlier in the chapters, he makes it clear that this foundation we have does not render our work futile, hopeless, useless, vain. He says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So it's not just about survival. Knowing that we win in the end if we can just hang on and make it. That's true, but that's not all. It's about the glory of the Lord today. It's about the advancement of his gospel and his kingdom. It's about fruitful labor and not work done in vain. We see this reflected in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 7 and 8, where it tells us, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. <coughs> Excuse me. We can be like that individually. But also, the church is like that tree. It has seen centuries of drought. It has experienced heat. Yet its leaves are green. And it still bears fruit. That tree's foundation, mixing metaphors here, its source is the river, as it says in Jeremiah 17. So on this Easter morning, as we remember that very first Easter morning, let's ask ourselves about our foundation. On what do we take our stand? In a moment, I'd like you to consider these questions for yourselves. As we listen to this closing song and watch this video, Please respond as the Lord would have you. Please listen to what the Lord might speak to you. On what are you standing? Is it solid? Are we able to hold firmly, to stand firm? Do we feel our work is in vain? Do we feel our faith is futile? Do we feel our faith is useless? Maybe you've never allowed the resurrection of Jesus to pour that foundation of your life. And you need to ask him to be your Lord this morning. In verse 58, the NIV says, stand firm. The King James and RSV say, be steadfast. The understanding there is literally to become what they had not been before. Maybe some of us need to become what we have not been before. This morning, let's stand firm. Let's stand firm in the knowledge and power of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to close with verse 57, 
which says, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the truth and the power of the resurrection. We are grateful, Father, that this foundational truth has brought us and has brought the church through years, the church through centuries and millennia, Lord. We're grateful for that. Help us to remember that this morning, Father, as we ponder the truth of what do we stand firm on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.